So you grew up just over the line from Ferguson where Michael Brown was killed? Yeah, but my experience was pretty different from the area that surrounded me. Part of my story is that I lived in three different states by the time I reached kindergarten and moved probably about five times before my first day of elementary school. And that's not just me. There's a good bit of research that says that African-Americans are more likely to move at younger ages. And while I love my dad, uh, he was in another state and just wasn't around in the same way that my mom and grandparents were. But again, this isn't a, a unique thing at all. So, Lewis, when I was trying to dig into this story and better understand the African-American experience, the language of generational wealth gap was huge. But I think some folks, even Catholics, are uncomfortable with this language because they really bristle at the idea of white privilege. Yeah, and I mean, to be fair, it is much more complicated than this kind of black and white way that we that we look at these questions. And though it is, a, that is a definitely a big and well-documented part of it, that's, I guess, why I was really drawn to this story that you and Jay were telling me about St. Bernardine and Edmondson Village in Baltimore, because it really gives a, a sense of, of how we got here. I'm Edward Herrera, and this is The Ark and the Dove, a podcast about faith, resilience, and hope in the Black Catholic community. This is the first of a two-part episode about Edmondson Village, a neighborhood in West Baltimore, and St. Bernadine, the Catholic church in the heart of the village. Here's Jay with the story. What happened in Baltimore is complex, but certainly not uncommon. Similar stories can be told about cities like Detroit, Chicago, Cleveland, Philadelphia, Boston, and Pittsburgh, just to name a few. But Edmonton Village in Baltimore was a special place to those who lived there and to those who arrived during the decade of racial change. Ed Orzer is a retired professor from the University of Maryland who devoted a large portion of his career to studying this period of Baltimore's history. I've been working on this story for the past five years now, and back in 2018, Ed agreed to have breakfast with me one chilly morning at the Double T Diner. One thing he said, it's been etched into my mind and pretty much sums up what happened to Edmondson Village. Just can you imagine a place where 10,000 people live? And 10 years later, 10,000 people also live there, but nobody's the same. Now let that sit in your mind for just a moment. This is a mass exodus of 10,000 people over a period of 10 years. No flood, no earthquakes, no disease, no drying up of industry. Just gone. The story of Edmonton Village is one of fear. One where fear becomes leverage for economic gain. And where fear is so powerful, it causes people, even those who profess a faith that is rooted in love thy neighbor, to compromise their values and the tenets of their faith. Well, from what I could tell, uh, determine from my interviews, because you, you can't get census data on this, the neighborhood was rather evenly divided, Protestant Catholic, uh, in the period of white settlement. And it appeared to be somewhat similarly divided in the period of black settlement. Uh, so you had one Roman Catholic parish, St. Bernardine's, with an R, by the way, which a lot of people leave out, uh, named for the developer's daughter, uh, and an assortment of Protestant churches, Methodist, Baptists, uh, etc., all coming out of different traditions. And what I felt was remarkable was, in a way, that the Catholic parish was able to make the transition 
not without difficulty, but to do it. One by one, the Protestant churches closed doors and changed over. In order to understand what happened at St. Bernardine's Church, we have to understand what happened to the neighborhood. To do this, we need to get some proper historical perspective and step back in time a little. The state of Maryland is not only the first Catholic settlement. It really sits as an epicenter of a rich and deep history of our nation. Maryland has always had a bit of an identity crisis. It's been called both the northernmost southern state and the southernmost northern state. During the Civil War, it was home to the most free blacks in the country. This is attributed to Baltimore being an industrial city and not relying primarily on agriculture like other southern states. But Baltimore has a history of being a mean city, an angry city. Oh, yeah. Baltimore was known for uh, horrible things. The first soldier killed in the Civil War was a young soldier coming from Minnesota. And he came to Baltimore, and the Baltimore rioters killed him. Someone shot and killed him. And then that's when the President Lincoln suspended the right of habeas corpus and locked up the mayor of the city, the police commissioner, and a number of other elected officials and held them to the end of the uh, Civil War and wouldn't release him. This is a man who knows Baltimore's history. I am Senator Michael Bowen Mitchell, Sr. I am the third child of Clarence and Juanita Jackson Mitchell. Uh, my father, Clarence M. Mitchell Jr., was the head of the Washington Bureau of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. And, was and his family has been immersed in Baltimore politics, going back to his father, Clarence Mitchell. It's in his DNA. His grandmother's home on Druid Hill Avenue welcomed folks like Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, and even Eleanor Roosevelt, to name a few. His interview is a little noisy because, in typical Senator Mitchell style, he insisted we meet at this Jamaican place on West 25th Street called Hibiscus. If you ever make it, I highly recommend the oxtail curry. But I digress. Back to the story. During World War II, Baltimore was a thriving metropolis. The war effort boosted the economy immensely through government contracts. Shipyards in places like Bethlehem Steel and Martin's Aircraft Factory employed close to 60,000 people each. People were flocking to the city for work, especially from the South. Uh, because of the war industry, and Bethlehem still was making a lot of money off war industry. And, but Roosevelt felt that they needed to hire blacks as well, so there, there came this incredible wave of black employment. This is Baltimore, America's sixth largest city, 12th largest metropolitan area, home of more than a million and a half people, site of the nation's biggest steel rolling plant, home to the House of McCormick, this country's biggest tea and spice house, America's second seaport, this is Baltimore. A southern newspaper called the Afro-American told its readers to, quote, come north now. They would never again have such a golden opportunity. It was the second great migration, not just of African-Americans from the south, but rural whites from Virginia, West Virginia, North and South Carolina, too. Like most cities of its time, Baltimore was becoming more crowded, and older homes downtown were beginning to deteriorate. Baltimore was also a hotbed of segregation. Uh, we were confined to a ghetto that existed up from North Avenue down to Franklin, and then on the east was Madison Avenue, and then on the west was Fulton Avenue, and an incredible black population lived there. And same thing in East Baltimore. So it, the blacks and the Jewish population were segregated into those slum areas. Segregation spanned beyond just blacks and Jews with something called land covenants or as we might call them today, deed restrictions. In the late 50s, there was the restrictive covenants that 
Baltimore had on most of its real estate saying you couldn't sell to uh, Catholics, Irish, Jews, blacks, they called Negroes then, and Indians and uh, Orientals. That was actually in the deed. So in the post-World War II period, many people had to move into the outskirts of the cities where they were allowed to buy property. One of those places was Edmondson Village. Yeah, all the Catholics, they came because they didn't have as many restrictive covenants in terms of the Catholics. So Catholics moved there, and that's why you have St. Bernardine's Catholic Church. When Edmondson Village was built beginning in the 20s and then expanded in the 30s and 40s, this was the edge of the densely developed city. Uh, and these were nice houses, presumably well-built and spacious and a little bit of grass in the front yard that old row houses didn't have and a little bit of yard in the back and trees on the corner, shopping center, top of the hill. By the 1950s and 60s, Edmondson Village was an incredibly desirable community to live in. I interviewed several people who lived there during this period. Some have since moved away, and some, like Ann Bynum, still live in the village to this day. When I first moved here in 65, it was just, it was something about the atmosphere. It was like, like a, you know, it was just homey and pleasant and yeah, it was beautiful. It was. I also spoke with Ann's daughter, Lachelle Bynum, who has fond memories of her childhood growing up in Edmondson Village. Oh my gosh, we were outside. Okay, you talking about ball burn number five, got your skate key, we had bikes. We had the little colorful spikes that you put on your bike, get them from crib and cradle up in the village. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we was out there playing four squares on the corner, we playing soccer ball. 7-Eleven. <laughs> 7-Eleven was seven kisses and seven pumps. <laughs> Rocky Bird and his wife, Mary, bought their first home in Edmondson Village on Allendale Street in the mid-60s. The Edmondson Avenue used to be a, a beautiful street to drive down. Oh, the village was yes. just wonderful. They had, it they was movers, such a nice place to beauty live. Beauty shops, bakeries, yeah. had all that up and down Everson Avenue. They had a few trees. Pretty and place. All. Mm -hmm. Those were the good old days. Yeah. It, it was a good place to live. You felt safe. You could stay out all night long. Nothing was going to happen to you. So everything was right there in Emerson Village. Even, it was like a little town in of itself. And even then, it was one of the best places to live in Baltimore. Robbie Davis's family moved to the village from the projects on Division Street in 1963. He was 13 years old. His grandfather and father were the first of three African-American families to own a home in Edmondson Village. You know, I mean, living in projects is like crazy. And it was just great going to Edmondson Village. That was like utopia. So... No matter how adverse things were, it didn't matter because it was better from where you came. And I guess a lot of families were appreciative like that. Unlike Robbie Davis, to those who lived in Edmondson Village most of their lives, it was a typical West Baltimore neighborhood, a blend of mainly German descent, Protestants and Catholics, a mix of both working class folks who maybe had to stretch to afford their homes, and well-to-dos who enjoyed all the amenities suburban life had to offer at a reasonable price. It was the land of pleasant living, complete with cold cans of Ninety Bow, Oriole games, and jars of sauerkraut fermenting in the cupboards of club basements up and down Hilton Street. Emerson Village at one time in the 50s was all white. Yeah. No blacks. Emerson Village was 90% white. 
and then the transition came over the years where the, the black families started moving in. So, but I'd lived there um, for uh, almost thirty years. It was an entirely different neighborhood um, in the beginning. This is Debbie G, who moved to Edmondson Village in 1958. She was eight years old at the time. Everybody had manicured lawns. The children played in the alley. The difference was there was a section for white and a section for black. Community-wise, we're talking now. When, when I first came here, the village was for the people of white persuasion. So we weren't in our territory. The blacks didn't come in the white section. The whites didn't come in the black section for the most part. That proved a problem around here because we were transitioning from a white neighborhood to a black and white neighborhood. Now, what really began to set this particular neighborhood apart from other neighborhoods in Baltimore City, and arguably the entire Mid-Atlantic, was the Edmondson Village Shopping Center. Again, here's Ed Orzer. I think it is important to realize that when Edmondson Village Shopping Center was built in 1947 uh, and opened in 1947, it claims to be the first sort of planned, harmonious design suburban shopping center in the East. Built by James Meyerhoff, the shopping center raised Edmondson Village from an ordinary neighborhood into a class of its own by the 50s and 60s. So it was a destination, not just for the neighborhood, but for the region. Uh, people found it quite a novelty because it had this very attractive uh, architecture. It was very tasteful. You know, the signs on the front had to meet certain standards, so they weren't sort of ticky-tack. It was built at a time when streetcar had been prime, but it also recognized that autos were on the way, so they set it back from Edmondson Avenue. But they wanted it to look nice, so they actually lowered the parking lots a little bit below grade. So if you're riding a streetcar or even a car on Edmondson, you could look across and see the shopping center without the cars blocking your, your view. And then, sort of crowning glory, it had an anchor department store, the first outside the downtown anywhere in Baltimore. So that was Hoshel's. Uh, and then a few years later, Hex opened across the street. So you had two, and that was just a really big deal. So all of that happened right after World War II, sort of in the heyday of the white period. But just about 10 years before racial change happened in the neighborhood, as blacks began to seek the opportunity to move into the village and in the residential areas, they were moving to an area where the shopping center was in its heyday. And among whites, by the way, there's this tremendous nostalgia about that period. I mean, they just, if you talk with any of them about that period in the shopping center, it was where they met their friends. It was, it was that world. And when African-Americans first moved in the neighborhood, that was true for them, too. It was just such a pretty place to go. You didn't mind shopping. We would walk from Flouton Road. Every Friday, we'd walk up into the village and take the children and everything. It was so nice. At Christmas time, they outlined the buildings in little lights at a time when not everybody did that like now. They would decorate the whole shopping center. At Christmas time. At Christmas time, you know, with the lights and everything. So that was a big deal, and people came from miles around to see it. It had 
a shoe store that had monkeys in the window, and everybody talks about that. There was Hess Shoe Store on the corner, had the monkeys in the window. The monkeys. Monkeys in the window. But they would yeah. be out. They would be in the yeah, you could go in and see the monkeys while you're buying the shoes and everything. And, <laughs> and they would, sometimes they would come to the window and like that. But, I mean, things like that made it very distinctive. It had a theater, a nice modern theater. It had a bowling alley. And across the street from there, next to Coalfields Barbershop, that was a bakery. I went to you could just smell between wholesome bread and that bakery. The smell was just phenomenal coming all the way up the village. Now, keep in mind that African Americans, of course, had not even had much opportunity downtown. And I don't know the practices at Hoshul and Hex when they first opened, but it had been the case downtown that blacks had to fight to sit at lunch counters and to try on clothes. Uh, it might be that those battles had been won. I, that'd be interesting to, to ask someone because I'm just not real sure. But I think, you know, this was a case of a black middle class, general broad middle class, feeling like they finally had achieved what they deserved and uh, enjoying the same kinds of things. I did ask the folks about Holschels and Hex. Some moved to the village after the race bar was lifted, and others' memories were a little hazy. Though some, like Robbie Davis, recount that Tommy Tucker's was the first to remove the race bar. Yeah, you could go in there with five and ten cents and buy something in Tommy Tucker. And you were welcome in Tommy Tucker. But, I mean, they didn't want you to, to go in Heck Company and Hosha Cones because it was more expensive stuff in there. So we would go in there and then they'd run you out of the store because they figured you were shoplifting. And when we came to Emerson Village, people just always assumed that black people were going to take things. See, I didn't, I didn't see that kind of stuff. I guess I would... I see now that I was probably just sheltered more because I knew we couldn't go into the heck made company because you were black, but it didn't, I didn't, I never seen signs or anything. So, I mean, you know, my mother just said we couldn't go in there. Eventually, other businesses in and around Evanston Village began to gradually integrate as the line of racial demarcation began to fade, and white residents in the area were beginning to notice the changes. At the time they moved there, in let's say the 30s and 40s, the racial dividing line was about Fulton and Monroe Street, which was a couple of miles east, at least a couple of miles east. So if they took the streetcar into town, they reached a point where they said, oh, this is the black section. The, the bridge separated Poplar Grove from Hilton Street. So you'd had to go over the bridge up the, up the top of the hill, and that would be Poplar Grove. So that was that's where the separation was, Hilton Street. But after all, it was across a valley. It was a multiple set of neighborhoods. And so they by no means were prepared for even the possibility of change, nor were they in any way prepared to sort of embrace integration. That was just a bridge too far. While this is a story about racial divisions, we're not really spending much time talking about the deep and visceral, even violent realities that are a part of our nation's history from the late 50s and 60s, and in some cases today. When listeners my age and younger think about unrest in Baltimore, they probably think about 2015 following the death of Freddie Gray. But to better understand this story, it's important to know about some of what was happening in the 1960s here in Baltimore. 
It was a hotbed of tensions. Hattie Carroll, an African-American waitress, was brutally beaten to death by a patron at the Emerson Hotel here in Baltimore. Bob Dylan actually wrote a song about it, The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll. And in 1968, there were riots following the murder of Martin Luther King. We have taken the following steps to restore law and order in our state. We have proclaimed a state of emergency in Baltimore City and Baltimore County. No city, Baltimore or anywhere else in the nation, can ever hope to exist if we don't come to a situation where decent, responsible, God-fearing people run the community. All of this simmering in the background to what was already happening in Emerson Village. More about that after the break. Before the break, Jay was reminding you of the racial tensions during the 1960s, which were especially evident in Baltimore. Let's go back to Robbie Davis, an African-American man whose family was one of the first to move in just prior to the racial change in Edmondson Village. When we moved in, slowly, transitionally, other black people moved in to Edmondson Village. Because at that time, if you lived in Edmondson Village, you were just a few blocks from the county, from a county line. So it was really, really upscale to live there. And the houses were expensive to most people. It's just like today, it's not like most people can just hand over cash for a house. But even if a black family did have cash? The reality was that they couldn't buy it. Again, here's Ed Orser. Because they could actually hand cash to the developer and say, here it is. And he would say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to sell it. And you say, listen, I'm an American citizen. I got rights. I've got cash here. And he would say, sorry. And he might even say it politely. But there was no recourse. It was not against the law. It was not against the law until 1968. It wasn't against the law until the FHA, or Fair Housing Act, was passed in 1968. 1968 was when my kids were being born. I mean, you know, that wasn't that long ago. <laughs> it wasn't. One of the reasons that Robbie Davis's family was able to buy a home in Edmondson Village before the Fair Housing Act passed was that his stepfather was a veteran. You see, veterans were eligible for low-interest loans or mortgages. Of course, countless black veterans were denied these loans because the VA could not actually guarantee them and the benefits were administered by individual states. But Robbie's family was lucky. But fortunately, my stepfather, like I said, was a veteran and he was able to uh, buy the house, which is, you know, peanuts now what they cost. But back then, it was a lot of money to be able to buy a house in Edmonton Village because it was a nice, very nice neighborhood. Again, here's Mary and Rocky Bird. When we moved on Allendale Street, you could count the blacks uh, in the area of, of, of Edmondson Avenue. Around 61 or 62, I think, by then, the blacks were moving in the village because people were moving. All, but it was all lily white. Uh, Actually, what happened, the real estate companies came into Emerson Village, and if you was white and you owned a home, he would offer you X amount of dollars over the selling price so you would sell your house to him so they could sell to the blacks. Okay, so now we're entering a part of the story that gets a little complicated. Stay with me here. We're talking about something called blockbusting. Blockbusting is usually defined in broad terms, and to better understand what it is, we reached out to an expert. Associate Professor of History at Tuskegee University, John Tillman. My name is John Tillman. 
I'm born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland. And so this topic is very interesting because I grew up in West Baltimore. I grew up near Warburg Junction. As I began looking into this story five years ago, I thought I had a pretty good sense of what blockbusting was. White flight, urban sprawl. Then I discovered all the conditions that had to be present in order to make blockbusting successful. Blockbusting is a business practice used by real estate agents and real estate speculators to exploit the issue of race to purchase homes in white neighborhoods for the use of buying and selling them for profit. That's the working definition I have. Their intention is the use of fears of racial prejudice among white residents to make them panic to sell their homes below the market value or what they purchased it for, and then turn around and sell it to uh, African-Americans above the real estate market value, all for the goal of making profits. Once again, here's Ed Orser. The goal of a blockbuster would be to take advantage of panic to drive prices down so that he could buy properties low and one might say, well, this is good news for potential black buyers because they could then buy at a reasonable price. But think again, <laughs> the whole tactic was to then resell the house at an inflated value. And why would blacks buy an inflated cost? Because they had no other option. So it meant that when they did see this opportunity, and they were eager to get out of older neighborhoods that were declining and decaying, and uh, they stretched to buy these houses. So here's how blockbusting worked. The real estate speculator would choose a block of row homes and knock on the first door. He would say, I understand your house is worth, let's say for all intents and purposes, $10,000. I'm willing to offer you 12000 for it. Would you like to sell? And I might just sort of also mention, by the way, that you may have noticed that across the valley, uh, some of the neighborhoods are really starting to change. There's a good bit of racial change here on the west side. It's probably only a matter of time until that happens here. So if you've been thinking about moving, this might be a really good time to move. And the person says, no, you know, I kind of like my neighborhood. I, I, it's, it's a good neighborhood. I like the village. Da, 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 da. So I'm not going to do it. But they would keep coming back. So, okay, I go to the next person, go through the same spiel, but I offer them 14. And let's say they're resistant. So maybe I go to the next person, offer 15. 15 is 50% more than this house is worth. And 50% might get you a pretty nice house in Catonsville or wherever. Uh, and they begin to think, you know, things are kind of changing. And, uh, okay, I'll sell it. So the guy hands him the 15000 and they leave. And, by the way, they don't necessarily tell anybody because they're sort of embarrassed and they even are ashamed, maybe. But they feel they've got to look out for themselves, and so they do it. So I go to the next person and say, you know, your next door neighbor, did you notice he left last night? <laughs> and he left because he's really worried this neighbor is about to change. And you might want to think about that too. And I'd be willing to offer you 11000 for your house. Or, let's say he takes it. So now you got two people in the block moving. So then I go to the third and it's 9000 
then it's 7,000, and then it's 5,000. And that whole block clears out. Once the block is clear, black families who have limited options are offered the chance to buy. But here's the rub. The houses are sold for a significantly higher amount of money. The difference between what whites sold for and what blacks bought for was a considerable profit for the blockbuster. During this period of racial change, countless blockbusters swarmed Edmondson Village. But there was one name that came up over and over again in my interviews. It became synonymous with blockbusting in Edmondson Village, as well as other communities in Baltimore City. The uh, principal company involved was the uh, Goldsaker Company, working behind a whole series of front names, Liberty, Eagle, whatever you name it, you name it. But they all were actually controlled by Goldsecker. Morris Goldsecker, a Polish immigrant who arrived in the U.S. when he was 16 and worked his way out of the East Baltimore slums buying and selling real estate. That was Goldsecker. Goldsecker. Mm-hmm. He uh, bought up a lot of houses in Emerson yeah. Village and then some of the other real estate companies bought along with him. And that's why Emerson Village wound up being black. Uh, he said and his family and so forth would defend themselves saying that he had made housing available to disenfranchised people. He himself was Jewish. He had been shut out when he when his family came to Baltimore. They'd had to kind of work the margins. Uh, so he became a investor in urban property. During the Great Depression, Morris Goldsecker started investing in real estate, and he was good at it. When the bottom was falling out and other companies were going belly up, Goldsecker paid all of his investors back. So to those in the financial world, he was a trusted and reputable real estate speculator. We'd call him a slumlord, but he would call himself an equal opportunity housing provider. And so he would claim that he was actually opening up our opportunities for black people, and he was, but he was also making a tidy profit in the process. And it only really worked for him or for people like this if, in fact, this panic happened. You know, there were, certainly were other realtors who might have been doing conventional real estate if you could do it in a neighborhood like this. Uh, but there wasn't such a bundle to be made. Why bother? Although Morris Goldsecker was not the only blockbuster in town, he got most of the publicity. His name alone made him a prime target for stereotypes and anyone looking to point the blame at one for the actions of many. Sometimes deliberately pronounced Gold Seeker or Gold Sacker, Morris Goldsecker rarely used his name while he was out working a neighborhood. Like other blockbusters who used aliases, he would often introduce himself by another name, such as Mr. Lane or Mr. Foyt. I've been approached by many, many realtors. In fact, Mr. Foyt was one. Oh, yeah. In 1970, WJZ News did an investigative report on blockbusting in the Montebello neighborhood. We'll be playing a number of clips from that report. And he came up here and he said, hello, I came to see you last year. He said, you told me uh, I could come back and talk to you again. I looked at him, I said, I've never seen you before. And I hadn't. Is that right? Yeah. That's right. I never had seen him before. So I don't know who he thought he was talking to. And the man that had gotten the house from the woman next door, he came up and he said to me, uh, would you like to sell? And I said, no, I couldn't afford to sell because I can't afford to go anywhere else. And he said, uh, you won't sell? I said, no. He says, well, pardon me, Angie. These are not my words. He said, what are you going to do when these n- move 
move in here. And they get out on a porch in the summer and they drink beer. I said, hell, I'm going to join them. <laughs> and I do. Right? Yeah. You're darn right. Unfortunately, very few people reacted like this. And even the ones who did, like Miss Rose Mason, who you just heard, all eventually moved. From everything I could piece together from the census and from interviews and so forth, because I did sample blocks to track, track housing, uh, it was like that overnight, block after block. So in 10 years, you go from the corner of Hilton and Baltimore Street to nearly Rognell Heights in the northwest corner. 10,000 people move out, 10,000 people move in. Throughout the course of this mass exodus, vacant homes are offered to potential black buyers at a premium. So what do you do if you don't have the money to purchase a home? Well, much like today, you would go to a credit bureau or to a bank to acquire a loan. But most of the conventional realtors and banks refused to be involved in racially mixed areas like Edmondson Village. They were also reluctant to offer loans to African Americans. So they often had little choice but to deal with the speculators. And the speculators would use a couple of different methods to extrapolate those payments. More from the WJZ-TV report. Keep in mind, this report was recorded in the 1970s, and some of the terms you hear are not what you would say today. Realtors devise buying and selling techniques that will give Negroes the long-term opportunity to buy, while at the same time protecting themselves. For example, a land installment contract. A land installment contract allowed a prospective homeowner to purchase a home without a down payment or closing charges. There was no transfer of the title until the necessary home repairs listed in the contract were paid off, as well as the equity, which of course was nearly impossible with the houses being sold at such a premium. See, installment contracts were written by the speculator to benefit the speculator, not the buyer. A lot of times, gold seeker would take all of the payments and really just attribute it to maybe a couple of years of interest without going to reduce the principal. Again, State Senator Mitchell. That was another unscrupulous thing he did. And he, he did these books where it was ink, just filled in by hand, right? And that's where you paid your rent down there, Gold Seeker. What they did was they extended the loans continually when they got behind. Again, Robbie Davis, who in addition to being an early African-American resident in the village, also owned a car dealership. So he saw firsthand questionable lending practices. Um, it's called rewriting the loan. And what that does is extrapolate the payments. They, they extend them out so that you never, I mean, you finish paying for them, but you pay way, way too much. And this was a way to, to make money. I mean, that's why they owned all the properties. And, you know, I don't want to use the, the, the word slumlords, but that's, that's what they were. But it wasn't the only option the speculator would offer. So they had another trick up their sleeve, the lease option contract. But then there are some other methods, more questionable methods, such as a document known as a lease option contract, an instrument signed by many black families moving into a neighborhood who believe that by paying the $300 for the option, they are really buying the house. They're not. They're just renting. The lease option was very similar to the installment contract, but it offered even less protection to the prospective buyer. Speculators preferred them. They were really more of a verbal contract with a lot of gray area. Since they were written in a way that was difficult to understand, the buyer would just take the speculator at their word. They could often get a prospective buyer to sign without asking too many questions. Although it was sold to them as a lease to buy contract, the speculator was under no legal obligation to apply any rent to the principal. 
Now, at the end of the year, the agreement gave them the option to buy the house for the full purchase price, but few buyers couldn't make sense of the jargon used on the lease option and couldn't afford the purchase price even if they did. Morris Goldsacker, the city's largest realtor, uses this option lease. Through the Afro-American newspaper, his companies solicit black families to rent houses in many sections of town, often in changing neighborhoods like Montebello. A former Goldsacker employee told me that families interested in renting are then offered a chance to buy for just a few more dollars a week. Up pops the lease option, out comes the $300, and the trap is sprung. Imagine that you have been paying for 10 years straight, and for some reason your health declines, and you're, you're just five days late, and Goldsecker comes in and puts you out on the land installment contract and forecloses on the property, and you really had no rights as a land installment contract because that's what it said in the Maryland law. And uh, some lawyers were participants in that and it was just unethical and it was just wrong and it was done with such animus. Through most of the 1960s, Morris Goldsecker employed over 100 people and had an annual payroll exceeding $500,000. He was virtually unknown outside of the real estate business. He lived a private life as a quiet man who kept to himself. But that would all change in the spring of 1969 when a group called the Activists began protesting in front of his office on Franklin Street. More about them after a brief break. Before the break, Jay explained that with the rise of the activist, a social action-oriented group, Morris Goldsecker's life wasn't going to be so private anymore. Again, here's Jay with the story. So who were the activists? The activists were a coalition of black and white civil rights advocates, lawyers and community organizers that included several Protestant and Catholic clergy. Their main focus was addressing the racial change in two neighborhoods, Edmondson Village on the west side of Baltimore and Coldstream Homestead Montebello on the east side. The activists really brought blockbusting issues into the light in terms of the financial exploitation. By the end of 1969, Morris Goldsecker's name was plastered on every newspaper and could be heard on every television throughout the city. Goldsecker's name is even being used now in many public forums on changing neighborhoods by people like Vincent Quayle, a Jesuit theology student who has been very active in the Montebello section. Morris Goldseeker is the one who has been uh, really regulating the exodus of the black community out of the, out of the center of the city of Baltimore for the past 35 years, wherever he is. Morris Goldseeker. Vincent Quayle, the voice of the person you just heard, was a member of the activists. I was able to track him down for an interview. It wasn't easy. Vinny's in his 80s now, and still lives in the Montebello area of East Baltimore. I showed up several times to his home, and there were no cars in the driveway. The lawn was overgrown, and nobody answered the door. It was a nice day, and so I walked the neighborhood and spoke to some of his neighbors to find out that he was still living there. In every conversation, they had nothing but great things to say about him. In my conversations with one of the neighbors, I learned that Vincent was very ill, so I left him a handwritten letter on his door, asking him about his involvement with the activists. I didn't expect to talk with him. From what I was told, the illness he was dealing with made it very difficult and painful for him to speak. A few days later, I got a call from Vincent's wife, who explained his situation and told me how eager he was to speak about this chapter of his life. He insisted we do the interview. We did it by phone. And so you were part of the activists, correct? Yes, I was. Yeah. yeah the, we were the group that picketed. They, we did it as the activists, and 
that was led by two men, Samson Green and Jack Martinez. The activists were an offshoot of CORE, or Creating Opportunities for Renewal and Enterprise. Vinnie Quayle and Jack Martinez were living in the same house at the time, and Jack encouraged Vinnie to get involved with what the activists were doing. Here's a clip of Vinnie from 1970 addressing the issue of blockbusting. Was this a natural transition? I thought it was, um, until I said to myself, something's wrong. You know, neighborhoods, 100% of the people don't move out of houses unless some forces are working there to drive them out. So I did some investigation of real estate books and tax assessment books down at City Hall. And what I really learned is that because of one, two, three speculators, um, this neighborhood changed. These men, in other words, changed it. They went in and broke that neighborhood. In 1970, the activists released a report showing the difference between the purchase price and the selling price of homes in Edmondson Village, Montebello, and other racially changing neighborhoods. In Edmondson Village, the average markup for a home in the comparison neighborhood was around 34%. But black families buying a home in Edmondson Village were paying an average of 69% above their valuation. If there was ground rent involved, it could be as high as 80%. The activists coined that difference, the difference an African-American would pay for a home versus what a white sold it for, the black tax. Again, here's Professor John Tillman. The fact that the black tax was just causing them, it put a financial strain on homeowners who were working. And next thing you know, when they couldn't pay their housing payments, they're out in the street. Although there were other firms involved, the activists targeted Goldsecker as the main culprit for the black tax, being the largest firm involved in blockbusting and redlining neighborhoods like Evanston Village. As one member of the activists put it, quote, you can't mobilize against the banking system, but you can when they have a personalized enemy who clarifies the issues. The activists were able to show that the lease option contracts were designed to benefit and protect the speculator and the financial institution while exploiting the buyer. Goldsecker denied all accusations he publicly called the chairman of the activists, Samson Green, a lunatic and a radical. Eventually, the activists had acquired enough evidence to file a class action lawsuit against Morris Goldsecker. He was the only named defendant. They accused him of antitrust conspiracy and violations of Maryland usury laws. They also asked the court to order Morris Goldsecker to renegotiate all lease option contracts, eliminating the black tax and reducing all payments by over a third. There were 76 homeowners seeking $25,000 each in damages and attorney fees. The total came to roughly $2 million. And were you successful in the lawsuit? No, we, I don't think we were successful. We weren't. No, the lawsuit was thrown out. Oh. Um, and that was an interesting story in itself because our two lawyers were two civil rights lawyers at the time, Ron Shapiro and Larry Gibson, both of whom are famous lawyers here today in Maryland. But it didn't work out, and that's a long story why it didn't work out. It's a long story, so I'll give you the cliff notes. I was able to get in contact with Larry Gibson. As Vinny just mentioned, he was the attorney who handled the case along with Ron Shapiro. He didn't want to be interviewed for this podcast. He said he couldn't sufficiently recall all of the details of the case. He was a young lawyer at the time, and it was one of his first big cases. So, the activists had an expert witness who can conduct an independent study appraisal of the housing market in Edmondson Village. It was the ace up their sleeve. But the plaintiffs withdrew their lawsuit in 1972, claiming they had insufficient funds to continue the case. The expert witness, a black real estate broker, got cold feet a couple of months before the trial. Samson Green, who headed up the activists, was livid. 
He claimed that a couple of months prior to the trial, the real estate industry went after their expert witness, threatening him and his business. Due to a lack of funding, the case was dismissed. In the court of the lawsuit, Goldsicker filed a $7 million libel suit against WJZ-TV for producing a 20-part series accusing him of blockbusting. You've been hearing clips from that report in this story. A year after Morris Goldsicker passed away, the court ruled in favor of the defendant and found that the series did not defame his name. Morris Goldsecker died in 1973. He was 74 years old. Five years after his death, the Baltimore Sun published a lengthy and in-depth article titled The Riddle of Morris Goldsecker's Legacy. He made a fortune in inner-city housing and left $16 million to the poor. In the article, he was praised by many who knew him for his philanthropy. Others were left perplexed. Upon his death, Morris Goldsicker left nearly all of his estate, 95% of it, to create a foundation that would assist other nonprofits in Baltimore who helped the poor and disenfranchised. The Goldsecker Foundation awarded its first grant in 1976 and still operates to this day. See, that's the paradox of Morris Goldsecker. And somewhere during the course of putting this story together, I became a little obsessed with the life and legacy of Morris Goldsecker. The corkboard in my office at home was covered in pinned up news clippings and index cards that had any connection to him. I wanted to find something that the others had missed. Then I got another call from Vinny. Jay? Yes, Vinny. Hello. Uh, Jay, first of all, I don't think you should focus on Goldsecker here. Goldsecker is not really the heart of the issue. He was one of a bunch of investors that took advantage of the current situation at the time and figured out how to make money on it. Gosecker became a scapegoat in those days, and I was part of the, the problem. Because those of us who were involved in this, the first thing we saw were the investors. We didn't see that the banks weren't lending money. Um, Maryland National and uh, City Corps, I know, were lending big bucks, millions of dollars to Goldsecker and his ilk to do what they were doing. You know, what happened was when we... Vinny and I went on, talking about the five banks and the names associated with them. A few researchers I contacted suggested I reach out to the Baltimore archives. I did, but unfortunately, banks didn't keep paper records of loans made to African Americans during this period. So, for example, there was one bank, Jefferson Federal Savings and Loan. We know from historical record that they issued 70% of their loans to Goldsecker between 1964 and 1969. But what happened to the money after that is anyone's guess. It could never be proven. Even if I could have reached out to someone with first-hand knowledge of what happened to the money, all five banks are dissolved and every CEO and CFO and person of interest is now deceased. The banks are closed, the people have gone away. What's left is a neighborhood in a city that's broken, damaged from years of neglect and a lack of accountability. And yet still, with all of the controversy surrounding Morris Goldsecker, there was and is another side to his legacy. Again, John Tillman. I don't put all the blame on Morris Goldsecker. This is the thing about blockbusting and why it's become this double-edged sword. So on one end, he provided a service to African-Americans, particularly professional middle-class African-Americans, because they get to move into a house that had more lighting, 
They had more room, even a piece of lawn. When you ask other African-Americans, particularly those who purchased home from Morris Goldsecker, they would defend Goldsecker. Now they would say, hey, Goldsecker didn't sell no junk. That's what they would say. <laughs> right? And they would say, hey, when the banks couldn't give me a mortgage to purchase a home, he did. He gave me a chance to own a home. However, it came at a financial price. You see African-Americans who were literally fleeced of their savings. It became the microcosm of things that will go on today. The destabilization of neighborhoods. Today, it will be predatory lending, what he was doing. We have to really understand that. And how you put all these charges in front of your clients, knowing that there's no way in the world your client can ever get out of actually owning this home or paying the rent on time. Again, Robbie Davis. That's business acumen. I mean, that, that's just what business is about. They, they took advantage of people, and it worked. Doesn't make it right, but it worked. I mean, that's what happened. Morris Goldsecker lived, built a business, and prospered during a very tumultuous period in the city's history. The Goldsecker Foundation agreed to do an interview. Hi, I'm Matt Gallagher. I'm the president and CEO of the Morris Goldsecker Foundation. So thanks for meeting with me, Matt. Um, Morris Goldsecker, is, he's an enigma to me. And I've heard good things about him. I've heard bad things about him. But one thing that really stands out was in this Baltimore Sun article. Samson Green, former member of the activist, said, a man makes his image as to what he is while he is alive. So as he lived, that is what he is. What he leaves makes no iota of difference. Now, I know Samson Green's passed away. He's not here today to get a statement from him, but what would you say in response to that? Yeah, I mean, you know, Mars Goldsecker passed away almost 50 years ago, and I was just an infant, but I've tried to learn everything I could about the man, how he lived his life, and his philanthropic intentions. In my decade with the foundation, I've encountered former associates who attest to his business acumen and trustworthiness, activists who once vehemently opposed him, but who now work closely alongside the foundation ultimately recognize the value of the fact that hardworking people oftentimes couldn't get loans when they couldn't get a down payment together. The Goldseckers took great pride in promoting home ownership and providing financing when it was hard to come by. Morris Goldsecker left a straightforward and impactful legacy in creating the Goldsecker Foundation. Morris Goldsecker was very much ahead of his time in creating a renewable asset for the city that has since granted over $125 million to more than 600 Baltimore nonprofit organizations and projects. Now, one might begin to wonder what purpose it serves to tell a story like this. Why open old wounds, right? The past is in the past. In the five years I've been working on this story, many of the people whose voices you're hearing now have since passed away, which is why it's important their stories live on. Because when we look at the condition of Baltimore City today, and we look at the ripple effect blockbusting potentially had on the city, we're left with more questions than answers. But when you eliminate the gold seckers, the crooked politicians, and the banks from the Edmondson Village equation, you're simply left with a neighborhood like any other neighborhood and the people in it. So after all these years of research, why do you suppose a neighborhood like Edmondson Village was so susceptible to blockbusting? Well, that, of course, was what I really wondered myself. And I really wondered, is this neighborhood any different than other neighborhoods? And is there any reason why it's particularly susceptible? Is it, no, it's not different, fundamentally, from most white neighborhoods, most places at that time. Uh, and 
my conclusion wasn't to say, oh, these are unusually racist people. <laughs> you know, they, they, in fact, were very middle-of-the-road people, probably on most things, including race. But like almost all whites, they had no experience living with blacks, working with blacks, going to school with blacks, nor did they think that would ever change. Uh, so I, I think, you know, just like most whites, they grew up in a cocoon. Uh, and you just didn't have to even think about that. Again, Vinnie Quayle. Well, I, I think it was a, a deep fear among the white elderly, especially the white people, that um, of black people coming into their neighborhoods. There was no question that was there. And, you know, you can go back and say, well, where did that come from? Well... It came from the times. It came from the times. That fear was there. And I, I, you just know that, you know, when they sat around the table, after they lost their house, and some white families went through this two, or two times or more, and they remembered stories of their grandparents telling them it was the black... They didn't blame it on the, on the gold sectors. They blamed it on the black folks. I wanted Morris Goldsecker to be the villain in the story so I could pin all the blame on one person. In many ways, it would have been a lot easier than confronting the truth. I thought a lot about what I would have done if I had lived in Edmondson Village in the 1960s and 70s, when I got that knock on the door from a guy like Morris Goldsegger. Yeah, maybe I would have initially resisted, but if I'm being completely honest with myself, whether it's a fear of the unknown or out of a fear that my property value would have declined, the sad truth is, I probably would have packed up my things and quietly left town just like everybody else. That's Jay Lampart reporting from Edmonton Village. Since recording this story, Vinnie Quayle passed away on March 27, 2023. Since he arrived in Baltimore in the 1960s as a Jesuit seminarian, he fought for civil rights alongside Monsignor Ed Miller and the activist. Vinny lived and died in the neighborhood he fought for. In 1968, he founded the St. Ambrose Housing Aid Center, which is still going strong. Today, St. Ambrose Housing Center employs over 30 people and has helped countless families. Be sure to join us for the second half of the story, which focuses on the Catholic parish in the heart of Edmonton Village neighborhood, on the next episode of The Ark and the Dove. The Ark and the Dove was written and produced by Edward Herrera and Jay Lampart with help from Louis Damani Jones. Editing and creative direction by Sarah Perla. Theme, outro music, and sound design by Jay Lampart. Additional music by Dietrich Goodwin with Jay Lampart. John Papa Jay Lampart played the harmonica. Artwork by Tom Grillo. In addition to Ed Orso's research, Antero Patillo's book, Not in My Neighborhood, how bigotry shaped a great American city was very helpful in the making of this episode. Thanks to Ed Poppenfoos at the Baltimore Archives. Special thanks to Siobhan Hagen and Marmia, the Mid-Atlantic Regional Moving Image Archive. Really, the work they do is amazing. To learn more, go to marmia.org. That's M-A-R-M-I-A dot org. Thank you to the OSV Institute for Catholic Innovation and the Notre Dame Idea Center for their early support. 
Most importantly, thanks to the countless folks willing to share their story for the making of this podcast. The Ark and the Dove is a production of Balthazar Media. For more information, please visit balthazarmedia.com.